Hey guys, welcome back to the Mind Refinery Podcast. As usual, I am your host, Kyle Bodanis. Up next is part two of my conversation with Chef Adrian Forte. Before we get to the show, a little Mind Refinery news. We're happy to announce Plated Episode 2 from Cairo with Love, featuring Maha's Egyptian Brunch, will be participating in this year's Toronto Web Fest. The festival is virtual this year because of the pandemic and runs from July 10th to the 11th. For more information, stay tuned to the pod and our social media feeds. And now, without further ado, here's the show. Now, when you were... Obviously, this whole thing is going out. The next episode is tomorrow night. We're recording this podcast on a Sunday, uh, Monday. At uh, what time can we find these? Uh, ten p.m. Ten p.m. Ever since I got te- like the the you know the 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 recorder, I now don't know when anything actually takes place. Listen, during COVID, I have no concept of time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like perpetually December twenty eighth. Yeah, I go to bed whenever. I wake up whenever. I just. Even with the cookbook, I told people like, yeah, you can pre-order June 2nd. It's probably not going to happen just because like, I don't want to rush it. What's the rush? You're not going nowhere. You're still on quarantine. You're on lockdown. So I don't need to rush. I'm just going to do things on my own time. When I'm ready, I'm ready. And when it's ready, it's ready kind of thing. Right. So that's just been my mentality. I'm just, I'm kind of enjoying this to be honest. <laughs> it feels like a little vacation because prior to this whole thing happening, I was working nonstop, like 80 hours a week. I was traveling. I just go, 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 go. And then this whole thing happened. Like we literally just came back from Mexico when this happened, right? So for me, I was just like, damn, this really didn't really put a damper on things, but it really slowed things down. I had a lot of like huge deals I was working on because obviously, you know, with the popularity of Top Chef, people knew I was involved there was already talks of like a lot of things. So that's the only thing I'm bummed out about is like all the future opportunities. But at the end of the day, um, I'm actually kind of thankful for the, the opportunity to like be at home, spend time with family, be alone with your thoughts. I do yoga every morning now. And you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I'm in a better mental state. I felt like everybody needed this, especially the hospitality industry. You, you know how destructive it can be in terms of like, being out late, drinking, doing drugs, stuff like that. I was never really a big part of like that culture um, just because most of the cooks that are around me are into fitness. Like I usually run all the time with my run club. Like we're all hospitality related. So, but um, yeah, I felt like this is a good reset for a lot of people who were having challenges with those issues. So yeah, kind of made sense. I think it's not often that, or ever, that the world kind of just stops and takes a breath. And, I mean, I, I've been telling people, you know, like, obviously this has happened for terrible reasons. But if you have this time, like, use it for something, you know, really, really, really good. Because, like, you don't get this chance where you're allowed to just focus on what you want to focus. And, like, you mentioned substance abuse and you know this being strung out and working in the industry is a rampant issue and you know you don't see self-care as part of the mo for cooks so it's kind of cool that you're getting to do that now to to kind of put a cap on the the food you know network narrative of what you're doing so we can't get into too much into we can't get into what ha- what's happened it's happening how do you just feel about your overall effort on the show man honestly i feel great i think i did I, I, I accomplished what I set out to do, which was um, I wanted to make great food for one and I wanted to impress. It just, I don't know, everything just played out exactly how I wanted to. I'm like, there's certain individuals that 
I really wanted to cook for, I really wanted to um, highlight Afro-Caribbean cuisine too. So I like have, for example, like Daniel Baloud trying, you know, my my dish during the quick fire and telling me that I had like one of the best dishes out of the challenge. That to me is going to be a moment that I'm going to relish forever. Well, what are you going to say to that? Like, it's, you know what I mean? It's, it's incredible. It's, 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 it's like, I, I think the reference I used at the time was like, he's like a Paul McCartney of cooking. <laughs> so it's like, you know, imagine being an artist and Paul McCartney tells you, that's a really good song you wrote there. That's awesome. Like, you're not going to forget things like that. Right. So that was definitely one of the highlights for me being on the show is, you know, cause I, I look up to him as like a chef and a mentor and just, he just, he's just an all around, like well-rounded chef. So to me, that was like incredible. So that was definitely a highlight. Um, Restaurant Wars for one. Once again, I got to highlight Caribbean cuisine. I made an amazing oxtail dish uh, that the judges loved. They were really impressed. The guys from the Boca restaurant group, those guys have like over 30 restaurants. So to have them try my oxtail and love it was like fantastic. And funny enough, what was super interesting is um, the guys from the Boca restaurant group, they were also judges on Top Chef LA. That's happening right now at the same time. Like All Stars. Yeah, I've been watching both, yeah. Likewise. And then um, a couple of the guys on that show who I also, like, look up to and admire, like, I have such, like, Gregory, for example, and um, a couple of the guys on the show, they do, like, an amazing job of representing themselves, and Eric as well, um, of, like, making Afro-Caribbean cuisine. And those guys, to me, like, they're on the all-star version of the show, right? They made oxtail as well, and the Boca restaurant group, um, they try the oxtail, love their oxtail. So to me, I'm like, man, you know, to have those guys try my food and love it and have them try those guys' food and love it, it's just like, it just does something for me in terms of, like, validation. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's good to, I mean, anytime you are getting feedback from, especially your well-respected peers, like Daniel Blude is a heavyweight, and I'm curious, what's he like? He seems like he's a pretty good guy. He's an awesome guy. He's super laid back. Um, yeah, it was fun. Like, like some of the footage didn't make it to the episode, obviously. <laughs> but he was like, oh, my God, you made oxtail. I mean, it's like, oh, my God, you made uh, Aki. And I was like, yeah. And he was just like, oh, man, I'm scared to try it. I was like, no, 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 no. It's out of a can. Don't worry. And then he started telling me that he goes to Jamaica with his wife and his family, uh, like, every year, right? So to me, I was like, perfect. I chose like the right dish. I'm representing properly. He's going to know what this is. Like it's Daniel Balloon. He, he's definitely going to know what it is, right? So yeah, he said that he goes to Jamaica all the time and he's always nervous to try Aki because he's heard that like, if it's not prepared properly, it's poisonous. You can go into like, um, you go into, basically you go into like a glycemic like shock. Or, like, oh, wow. Yeah, you go into a coma, you could die. So like, that's I didn't all even po- know. I didn't even know that and I love Aki. Yeah, well, the canned stuff, you're never going to have that issue. Yeah. Because it's pasteurized, it's cooked, whatever. But the fresh stuff is like, if you ever go to Jamaica and someone offers you Aki, it's more than likely fresh. You know, you have to be careful for that. So when I told him it was canned, he was relieved because he was like, he even said it on the episode. He's like, I don't want to pass out and die. And I was like, no, 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 no. I would not do that to you. <laughs> My role models, I'm not going to kill you on the show. That just would be not good, right? Yeah, so, poisoning the judge is not the way to win the competition. Not at all. So you're definitely going to go home. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was awesome just having him like 
try it and take and like the fact that he appreciated that my plate in was like super rustic because that's what Afro-Caribbean cuisine is super rustic uh it's very just like pack full of flavor bold flavors it's not more so about the presentation and you know being mechanical and being it's all about the flavor right that's what comes first and that's one of the things that stuck with me day one of being on the show when um because when I started off the season I was trying to be like all fancy and like stuff like that and then Mark said something that stuck with me because they like the judges talk to you right like off camera and he's like, at the end of the day, all that matters is flavor. He's like, you can put whatever on a plate. It doesn't have to look great. But if it tastes good, that's all I really care about. That's what makes a great cook is being able to create something tasty. Yes, it needs to be visually appealing. Yes, you know, we're looking for refinement. But flavor is over everything. So when he told me that day one, I was like, all right, I'm going to focus on um, my dish tasting good. Like, to me every time I cooked or every time I had a challenge or elimination, refinement was like secondary in my mind. It was always tasting my food, making sure my ingredients are cooked properly. Like that was more important to me than putting something sexy on a plate. It was like, okay, yeah, I gotta get this flavor right. So I was constantly tasting my food, constantly seasoning, just to make sure like I was putting something out there that was that I was proud of, right? And then you know, within the last 30 seconds, you'll see me start playing like, oh my God, how am I going to put this together? But it's kind of, uh, it's kind of difficult when you have like seven cameras all around and you don't know like where the angle is coming from and if they can see or whatever. So you kind of just have to just make it work. So how do you decide it's time to write a cookbook? Um, how do you decide if it's time to write a cookbook? I don't know. I feel like I had the time, so why not? You know what I mean? I had the time. Uh, why? If, if if this pandemic had not had happened, I honestly wouldn't have been able to to do it because I wouldn't have had the time. I've been so busy with other projects, so I felt like it was more so um, out of like necessity. I had like finishing up the show. Um, I just came back from Mexico, so I was like super inspired. I have all these ideas in my head. I just needed to basically put something down on paper. So I started to just write recipes down. I was cooking every day. I'm like, I'm going to have a routine. I'm going to wake up every day. I'm going to cook. I'm going to keep myself busy until this is over. Because in my mind, I was like, oh yeah, we're going to quarantine for two weeks. No problem. Then after two weeks, this will all be over. Little did I know it was going to last as long as it did, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's my first cookbook. So there was really no structure in terms of like, I got to do this or the motivation behind it is just, I was just inspired. I was like, you know what? Um, I'm going to do this because a lot of times I'll post something on social media and people will message me and say, Oh, this looks awesome. Or, Oh my God, I want to try this. Or where can I get this? And because I don't have a restaurant, um, I often say to people like, Oh, I made this at home or, Oh, I just did this because of whatever reason, or, Oh, I just felt like making coconut fried chicken today. And then I decided I'm just going to put the recipes out there. And then people really, really gravitated towards it. So I figured, you know, if uh, people are asking for recipes, like just today, someone asked me for a hard bread recipe and I was like, I'm going to put it in a cookbook. So if you want, if you want the recipe, buy the cookbook when it comes out kind of thing. And the person's like, yeah, I'll wait for it to come out. Like, I'm not going to, I guess they wanted to make an attempt to make hard bread because everyone's baking these days. And yeah, he was just like, yeah, I'll wait for the cookbook to come out. I'm not going to try it right now, but I'll wait 
So yeah, the inspiration just came from behind being at home, coming from a vacation and being inspired from being in Mexico and just wanted to be able to give people, you know, really dope recipes, the food that I eat at home. Cause this cookbook is essentially the stuff that I eat at home. It's not necessarily like restaurant quality food or anything like that. It's, it's what I eat. Right. So it's, I, I think it doesn't get any more organic or authentic than that, which me giving you the stuff that I make for my friends and my loved ones. Right. So I feel like that just, it doesn't get any better than that. I'm giving you like legit because most times like chefs make cookbooks and there's some sort of like strategic plan behind it. You know, they're looking at like demographics and who's going to buy the book and ingredients and you know, what um, targets, like different targets, stuff like that. For me, it's just like, this is all the shit that I eat all the time. This is stuff I like. I'm putting it in a cookbook. Here you go kind of thing. I think that's reflective of the way, I think it's definitely reflective of the Toronto culinary scene and how it's grown. Because now you're seeing, like, I guess a little bit more of a democratized uh, way of making food. So you're seeing restaurants that are just opening where they're selling three things. And it's representative of what they enjoy and where they come from. And you said you had no goal going into it. But, I mean, what would you like people to walk away with after they read your cookbook at this point in your writing process? So the way how I structured the book is um, it's, it's Afro-Caribbean recipes, like most of the food, because that's what I eat at home. There's a couple like Filipino or like Mexican, but there is still like a, some sort of twist on there. And what I did was I focus mostly on biodiversity and I focus on ingredients and I educate people as to why we eat the way we do in the Afro-Caribbean community. It's not just about like, oh, I use allspice because I like the taste of allspice. No, I use allspice because it has different medical, medicinal properties. You know what I mean? So I explain certain things or, oh, I have a, a, a Kalaloo risotto and Kalaloo is basically just like amaranth, right? So in that passage of the book, I explain the different types of Kalaloo that like, uh, East, like Eastern Caribbean Kalaloo is not the same as like, if you were to go to Trinidad, like they use the, 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 the leaves of the dasheen plant. When in Jamaica, Kalu is something completely different. So it's like, I wanted to differentiate between the cuisine so people understand regionally why we use certain ingredients, how it's prepared. This is my interpretation of that ingredient. This is why I'm cooking this ingredient this way. And this is what I enjoy at home. So it's like, there's all this historical context and relevance behind the ingredients the way it's prepared and it's super educational. It just, it's just, it's not just a cookbook. There's also like anecdotes. Like I talk about my fried chicken recipe, you know, working at real sports, doing dirty bird, how I arrived at this fried chicken recipe. It's essentially my favorite fried chicken recipe. I use coconut milk instead of buttermilk. Why I use coconut milk where I was at the time. So there's all these different little tidbits as to how I arrived at the recipe, because I think in a cookbook, it's super important to explain to the reader why you should give a shit about this recipe. You know what I mean? A lot of times people make cookbooks and they're like, here's my roasted chicken with lemon and blah, blah, blah. And just, it's so awesome. It's, it's like, no, I'm telling you why you should care about this. You should care about this because when I make fried chicken, this is how I make fried chicken. How did I arrive at this? I was in Jamaica on my friend's um, farm. She had fresh coconuts. We couldn't get buttermilk because people don't use buttermilk in Jamaica. I made my own coconut milk. I brined the chicken in it. 
And now this is the only way I cook fried chicken. I don't essentially make my own coconut milk all the time, but I do buy canned coconut milk now that I'm back at home. And that's how I brine my chicken. So it's just explaining to people as to how, so they understand your thought process, how you arrived at this recipe. And it's kind of, it's kind of cool. It's like when an artist writes a song, and it's about like heartbreak and you see the girl that they're writing a song about, like, you know, or even like a Taylor Swift song when she writes about whoever broke her heart and you see the person, it's like more relatable. So I'm trying to just basically be more intimate with the reader so they understand my thought process, how I came to this recipe and why they should care about it. Find expressing yourself in writing as an individual who's expressed himself through cooking throughout his life. It's extremely different, honestly. Writing's a lot more difficult because, um, you know, I basically just go on like a, a wild tangent where I'm just like typing, 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 whatever comes to mind. And then after I'm done a passage, I'll go back and I'll scale back. I'll take certain things out. So it's a lot more challenging than cooking because um, I have to make it interesting, right? It just can't be, hey, man, this fried chicken's dope. Uh, you know, I developed it from hours of working in restaurants and blah, 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 like, it has to be captivated. I have to make the reader care about this. And I'm not in no way, shape, or form like a professional writer, but I believe my food story and my food journey has so many interesting stories that I'm able to keep the writer or the reader, sorry, engaged, right? Because a lot of crazy and wild things have happened to me during my, my tenure as a chef. So to finish up uh, this interview, which I have enjoyed thoroughly, um, I want to talk about our favorite cookbooks, the top three. Oh, yeah. So, because we're talking about this cookbook thing, and I want to know, get more info on what inspired you. So, let's start with your third favorite cookbook. And maybe no particular order, but let, let's start. What was your third favorite cookbook? My third favorite cookbook is uh, Raw and Rare. So, it's essentially a cookbook about... Everything from um, carpaccio, tartars, it's uh, from Lindy, Lind, uh, sorry, Lindy Winsmith. Uh, she's an author. She's a food writer. I believe she might also be a chef. She did a couple other cookbooks, one about drinks, and she did one called Cured, where she talked about curing seafood and stuff like that. But uh, I, like, I like raw and rare in particular because in a lot of West Indian culture, we don't really eat a lot of raw anything like i know in jamaica in particular they will not eat a steak medium rare you have to like pass <laughs> uh well done which i don't even know if that's a thing but they don't want no blood they don't want nothing raw so you know i had to be extremely open-minded as a child and very early in my career to be able to like tr you know my first time trying an a, a, a oyster i think was when i worked at rock lobster prior to that i didn't want to eat nothing raw because just a stigma of like raw food right so in this book it covers everything from like sashimi ceviche tartare carpaccio the whole shebang so i was super obsessed with um with like that type of food back in 2013 so when i discovered this cookbook in 2017 i was like holy shit this is like perfect right so i was cooking like that for a while after i discovered this book it like did a lot for my cooking um and i have like a newfound appreciation for that type of cookery because it takes like special it's almost like sushi right like even sashimi for example it takes special skill there's certain things you have to do the way how the fish is prepared if you don't do it properly you can get someone really really sick so it, it, it requires a lot of technique and skill and knowledge 
I like anything that has that makes me want to do more research. So after I read the book, I went out and I did like so much research. I think I bought, I actually bought a, uh, a sushi cookbook after, but it was in Jap- I bought it off Amazon. It was in Japanese. <laughs> so I couldn't really read, read it much, but um, yeah, it just, it opened up more doors for me in terms of like techniques and stuff like that. It's interesting because and why I kind of never really understood racism is because there is a, there's things that kind of bring us all together in certain ethnicities together. And one of them is absolutely uh, the prejudice against raw food. And because even my, you know, my grandfather, I have to incinerate a steak in order for him to eat it. And it's, and it's painful. Again, this is this thing with Southern Europeans as well. And, uh, and one of my closest friends is Jamaican and I worked in my co-producer on our feature documentary that we put out earlier. Um, I, when we, when him and I first started hanging out, I could not get him to come to have sushi. And like, he was very like, there's certain things that he wouldn't eat. He's such expanded because he's been around us. It's, it's really funny. The whole idea about getting around certain inborn culinary prejudices. Yeah. And it's it's interesting. So it's really cool that you know things like that put it, you know. And I, I guess that has only expanded your cooking. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Like prior to the cookbook, I was obviously I was eating raw foods and stuff like that, and eating cured meats and stuff like that. But you know, it it, it kind of opened my eyes to like so much more because um, there is a couple other type of techniques. Like for example, one of the things in the book is she shows you a way of cooking salmon because there's like different chefs that contribute to the book, but uh, a particular way of cooking salmon where, or not just salmon, like any fish with the skin on, where you sear it skin side down and you don't flip the fish at all. Really? Just, so the heat permeates from the bottom up and you get this like, the, the moistest fish you'll ever have. Honestly, trust me. Are, are you like, still scoring the skin on that? You're still scoring the skin. Okay. It's the only way I cook fish now is I score the skin, I sear it, and I don't ever flip it. I did a, I did a um, IG live last week with a, a buddy of mine's Eden on Black Foodie, and I was I was doing that technique, and then a couple of her followers tried it, and they like tagged me. They're like, "Oh my god, I tried this. I'm never gonna cook fish any other way again because the fish is just so moist. Because you you, you basically turn it off or remove it from the pan, and the residual heat continues to cook the fish. So it's like it's like the perfect consistency every single time. So for mine, uh, third one is the Momofuku cookbook uh, oh, yeah. by Peter Meehan and David Cheng. I love the story of like how they started working together because when Momofuku started, it was just David Cheng and one partner, I'm trying to remember, I can't remember the name, uh, the small restaurant, all they were doing was serving one type of, uh, of ramen. And yeah. that's what they did. And for the first six months, like they really, they thought that they were going to go under and, you know, Chang comes from this whole not, you know, not Michelin star training. You know what I mean? He trained, you know, his is from traveling, going to Japan and stuff. And when Peter Meehan did the first review of Momofuku, he was like, you know, it's meh. And mm. it's David Chang. And you're like, okay. And, but he went in and re-reviewed it later. You said, I want to give it another try. And he ended up loving it. And he called... Um, David Cheng and being like, I just gave this a really good review. You are going to be absolutely busy. And the rest is kind of history. And I love that story. 
and how it began this collaboration between them that has led to things like Ugly Delicious, you know, and some of the mind mind of a chef. And I think what it is really good for is inspiring people to not give up and to stick to your guns because at some point you can make it work. And I, I really think that the Momofuku book is, you know, the starting point of this big empire that's built. But I mean, that's my favorite part of the story rather than the, you know, the empire. It's the, it's the early beginnings and the, the demonstration that travel and going and immersing yourself in those cultures. And also it was a way, even though it's ramen, you know, it was a way for him to continue to discover his own Korean cooking roots and Mm. as a way of getting in touch with Asian cuisine that needed more big ups in a North American setting. And I think he's one of the, you know, real kind of pioneers of that in the modern sense and where we are, you know, taking it beyond just, you know, going to Chinatown and stuff. And he's been a really big advocate for that. And I felt it started with that with him. And that's why I I really, really loved it. I have a lot of respect for David Chang, man. He's done like a lot for the industry in terms of like um, acceptance and opening people's eyes him himself and Anthony Bourdain, obviously, it just to the masses, making people more acceptance of other cultures. And yeah, so I, that, that's a really good one. I like that one. All right. What's your next one? Uh, my next one's going to be Provision. So it's a, it's a Caribbean cookbook. It's written by these sisters, Michelle and Suzanne Russo. So they're chefs and entrepreneurs from Jamaica. Um, they basically brought... Jamaican cuisine single-handedly to the forefront of like gourmet because um they were like listed they had a cookbook called Caribbean potluck and NPR listed it as like one of the best cook the best cookbook of 2014 which to me was like that's how I found them I was like wow okay doing big things right also their restaurant in Jamaica well it's no longer open they have a new restaurant now but um they had a restaurant called uh Chabella where they did all this different fusion and because like Jamaican people were very like set in our ways. You know what I mean? We're very just like traditional. We don't want you to play with, like I get in shit all the time for doing things differently, all the time. You know what I mean? People come to me and say, man, why'd you do this this way? That's not how it's done. You're not supposed to do it like that. And I'm like, like, no, like I'm about being progressive. So they were like super progressive. They changed the landscape of the culinary industry in Jamaica. They had other chefs and restaurants having to keep up with them and doing different things and experimenting with different dishes. Baker has like a, a, a very diverse um, like population, right? Everything from like East Indian to Asian. There's a lot of Russian, like Europeans in Jamaica. Like, I don't know if you know that or not, but the model for Jamaica is out of many one people, right? So it's not just um, African or black people in Jamaica. It's, a, it's made up of like people from all different walks of life. So you know, for them, they basically took um, all those different cultures and molded it into what is now known as Jamaican cuisine, which is being able to make a Chinese dish and call it Jamaican because there is Chinese people in Jamaica. Being able to do a specific curry and saying this vegan eggplant curry with chickpeas and coconut is Jamaican because we have Indians that live in Jamaica. So it's just like, you know, they just they just gave me the motivation to take whatever cuisine I'd like to take from or pull from from inspiration and just really own it and say, this is Jamaican. We have these cultures that live here. So this is part of our culture, which is what I was talking about earlier with my whole anecdote of New York and my food story and my food journey. 
But um, yeah, it's a really dope cookbook. It's it's mostly plant based. I don't believe there's any meat dishes in the in the cookbook, if I remember correctly. Um, and yeah, it's like you'd go through the cookbook and just be like, wow, a lot of dope recipes. Like the way the photography is beautiful. Like it's it's what I want to do when it comes to food. Like everything just looks amazing. You don't even think of it as a Caribbean cookbook. You just think of it as a really amazing cookbook. My favorite cookbooks and my favorite chefs are the ones who really embrace the idea of food as storytelling yes. and is telling a larger story than just what's on beyond the plate. Yeah. And that's really cool that, that kind of inspired, you know, what you're doing. So mine is a cookbook called Black Truffles and Foie Gras. And sorry, not Black Truffles and Foie Gras. It's Black Pudding and Foie Gras. And this is the one of the cookbooks I've used the most. I was chef at a steakhouse for a while, a well-to-do steakhouse, and I really got influenced by game and English cooking and I'm and and like the elevation of uh English cooking. And I will never normally use the term elevated, but British cooking be, can be kind of bland. And what I like what Andrew Pern was able to do is with his book, you know, he went off in the world he went into Michelin star kitchens. He did the French cooking, but when he returned to Yorkshire, he kind of understood what it was all about and really embraced the, you know, with his restaurant, the star Inn. he really embraced local cuisine and the relationship between farmers and the area you come from and the culture you have in terms of informing and especially British food, which tech, which really, despite the, yeah, the success of British chefs, gets a bad rap and one my only knock on this cookbook is that um he put a suede cover on it a and suede? the cover is suede so like when i went to the when i went to buy the cookbook in Kensington market the person was like this is a really good cookbook and i'm excited for you for getting this but i have no idea how you're gonna have this in the kitchen without it getting fucked up within maybe four weeks mine was completely covered in sauce and fucked up and it's just like, oh, yeah, it was hilarious. So I ended up having to buy a second second copy. The notable meal, the first meal that I kind of made from it was this. It's this stuffed, it's this pork belly uh, with star anise and um, with, a, with a cider reduction. And mm -hmm. I tried making it. And I'm like, honestly, this is so flavorful and so fantastic. And it just is the complete opposite of what you consider when you're looking at British food. So what's your next one? This is your final one, number one. My final cookbook, man, it is, is going to have to be the Noma Guide to Fermentation. That book, literally, for years, so for years I've been fermenting and pickling and doing all these different experiments. And uh, I, I learned these techniques from my grandmother, right? Because she would do them as well. Like even right now I have like uh, fermented scotch bonnets, uh, red Thai chilies. I make my own pineapple vinegar. I make my own garum. So it's so crazy that for years, I didn't even understand what I was doing. So to be able to get a book like this that breaks down the science behind it, because when it comes to cooking, I'm, I'm a little bit of a geek, right? So this book breaks down the science of like lacto-fermentation. And then I haven't read it. I want to lacto-ferment everything because I understood why the things I was pickling and fermenting tasted so good, right? I understood why 
the umami flavor that you'd get from lacto fermented something increases or enhances the flavor of your dish. So yeah, this is like the quintessential book for me, just also because David Zilber is uh, from Vancouver <laughs> um, and he's from Caribbean descent, which, you know, so that was kind of a bonus also. But um, yeah, it really explained things from this because I love when it comes to food, I like things explained to me from a scientific perspective. That's how I understand things. So having bought this book, read it, I was like, wow, everything makes so much more sense now. And my processes have gotten a lot better. And what's so funny is that they discovered all these things through accidents, right? That's what's so, so fascinating is that this, these are all accidents. And a lot of times for myself, some of the most delicious dishes that I've come up with the recipes are just happy accidents. You forget something or you forgot about something or, you know, you spill something by accident and then you're like, oh shit. And then it just comes out good. So it, it also made me realize that you could, it's never too late to turn something around. So, and the recipes are approachable. It's literally just time. <laughs> That's all it is. And it's very practical. Um, yeah, it's, it's like edible chemistry is what it is. But I've always been into like science and stuff like that. So for me, it was just, it just, it was mind blowing. It's a perfect way for people to experiment with like different, different levels of fermentation. And it's very engaging for the reader. And I like how, I like how it's, it's very well written also. It's really well written. And uh, honestly, I want to know the career trajectory that, you know, did David Zilber know that he was going to be like head of fermentation? Uh, when he first started cooking, like it's, it's, and obviously what Rene Renzepi, like is the man is CIA. Like that's like, it's like, it's like, he's has this like CIA level of experimentation and research and finding the info and digging. And then he's like, it's funny because when you watch, if you watch some of the stuff from Noma, um, mm. whether it's, you know, on, been on mind of a chef or anything, you know, I remember this, I'm trying to remember what's from the, there's this one episode where he's grabbing like rotten potato roots and he's like, how am I going to use these? Or in like in, in, in firm, and it's just the, it's thinking out of the box. And I think that, you know, David Zilber is one of those people where I'm super interested in what they're going to do, because if head of fermentation, he will inevitably leave Noma. I want, or start his own, you know, restaurant under the banner you know, I really want to know how he's going to use that, you know, in, in, in even in a larger operation that, you know, he's putting together because he's he's become a star and he's fantastic. He's a star within his own right. He's actually a guest judge on tomorrow's episode. <laughs> oh my, that's fantastic. OK, so you got it. Were you trying not to fanboy over that? Because I would I was, like I was trying not to fanboy when I saw him. I was like, holy shit, this guy's here. I'm like, they really up the budget this year. But um, I was like, yeah, I really got to impress him. So I, you know, I tried to go super hard. But um, yeah, I was like, man, I wish I had my book so he could sign it. It was crazy. It was honestly so crazy. Um, but yeah, man, that, that for me is like quintessential. It's also like super original before this cookbook. Because a lot of cookbooks are the same. You know what I mean? If you look at like certain genres, it's all the same shit. For me, this was the most original cookbook of like the decade. No one's done anything like this ever so that's what really like caught my attention i was like a book on fermentation interesting well yeah that's and i just bought it because i'm a huge fan of noma and that's kind of how i got into david zilber and just realized that this is it's fantastic 
Yeah, it also got me into like a different way of cooking and different ingredients. So it's like, you know, because you, you already know that fermentation changes the building blocks or the, the molecular structure of certain ingredients. And like, for example, if you add like a raw scotch bonnet to a dish versus one that's been fermented, those are two completely different flavor profiles. You know what I mean? Like it's exceptionally different in terms of the way how the dish is, um, is balanced. So things like that, like, like I told you for years, I was fermenting and pickling and doing all these things. And I didn't understand the science behind it because my grandmother didn't understand the science behind it. It's just what she learned from her grandmother and vice versa. And I feel like a lot of people from other cultures who pickle things and ferment things, they don't understand the science behind it. They're just doing it because it's a tradition that's been passed down. So I was very happy when someone explained this shit to me and I was like, Oh, that's why. Oh, that makes sense why I got sick when I ate this because I'm supposed to scrape the bacteria off. Or, you know what I mean? So yeah. to me, it's literally my cooking Bible because that's just the way how I cook. And now um, I spend a lot of time making my own everything. Like uh, I'm in the process of making my own shoyu. Uh, I make my I made my own vinegar. It takes, because these things take a while, right? So yeah. I made my own uh, pineapple vinegar, which I use for the dinner you're at. Uh, we did a yes. black dinner. And, you know, like people are asking like, oh my God, what's on this? Why does this oyster taste so good? I'm like, oh, instead of doing a traditional mignonette, I made my own vinegar out of pineapple, like pineapple uh, bits. And yeah, this is like from six months ago and that's what tastes so good. And then I added my fermented scotch bonnets to the pineapple vinegar and it made this like beautiful spicy umami uh, tart, like you, like you tried it, the mignonette, right? So it just elevated that dish, a simple oyster, with that mignonette, it was just like so delightful. I had everything from that tasting menu. And for the people listening, um, basically Suzanne Barr, who we who we interviewed, uh, she has hosts a night of called For the Love of, and it's about really shining light on cooks of color and cooks who don't really get a chance to shine. And uh, Bashir, I can't remember Bashir's last name off the uh, top of my Munya, yeah. And then Suzanne and Adrian, they put together a, a nine, it was a nine course tasting menu and the whole crew ate every dish and it was unreal. Um, I was really, really, really impressed by, you know, the stuff you put together for it. And it's funny, you know, David Zilber and reading about what they did, like that, even on that, even on a simplistic level, for example, making hot sauce, yeah. not using straight up peppers and using fermented peppers and just realizing that it adds a whole layer that you can't because i mean if you're putting hot you know unfermented hot peppers straight in especially scott you know like scott bond scotch bonnets it has a very aggressive unbridled flavor which yes. can be good for turning up the heat but that richness and that you know that texture and that it's hard to even describe when you're putting fermented peppers and using them yeah, in it's a like sauce luxurious. it's like it's almost like umami you know what i mean yes 100 so I'm going to talk about mine to wrap it up here. Mine is the revolutionary whole beast by Fergus Henderson. Uh, This book is incredible. And it's funny because when it was first released, it was kind of considered, it was reviewed very well, but they were trying to, you know, it was like, it's good. It's a cult book, but then it ended up leading a massive, you know, revolution in the way we're looking at food. And I feel like a lot of our conversation today is talking about, going back to the ways people used to eat fermenting. How did you, uh, you know, how you used to eat back in Jamaica. And this 
takes you back to the you know the peasantry uh taking the whole animal breaking it down and using it for food and like you can see its influences for example in this city you know 2011 you have the black hoof you have Jenegg, grand van gameron they come together direct callback to the whole beast and just the idea that you know moving beyond this idea of agribusiness and having a butcher break everything down and using the whole animal because if we've taken the time to slaughter the animal there should be no waste and we should be consuming the whole thing and just the idea how you can take that and make it accessible and Fergus Henderson is one of my favorites in general. Obviously, he's hilarious. Um, his work with his wife is fantastic. And this one, for me, was huge. You know, all of a sudden, fast forward to me getting this book, you know, in the later 2000s, and then all of a sudden, I'm cooking all sorts of ridiculous shit for my parents. Yeah. And they're like, and they're like, I don't know if we can handle this, but, uh, you know, I just, I fully geeked out on it and loved it, and it just completely, you know, inspired me to look at things a different way. Man, this is definitely my number one uh, prior to the fermentation guide coming out. So, you know, I, I completely understand what you're saying because a lot of Afro-Caribbean cuisine also is nose to tail dining. You know what I mean? Like in yeah. Jamaica, we, we eat everything from chicken feed, oxtail, um, goat tripe, um, cow cod, which is literally the testicles. Yeah. You know what I mean? Goat head soup. Like we don't waste anything. We use every and anything. So... This book also did play an integral role in my um, my uh, my development as a chef. I did I don't own it anymore because I lent it to somebody, but um, I I agree with you, man. This changed the way how cooks cook and the way how consumers ate because prior to this, people weren't as experimental. So it definitely did something for the culinary industry for sure. It also helps that Anthony Bourdain wrote, wrote the forward, right? Like. People oh yeah, about- the rewrite. Yeah, because that's the one I got. The original edition didn't have him write the forward. Then for the next printing, he wrote the forward. <clears throat> and I also think he was also huge in kind of bringing Fergus Henderson to the masses. That's another really good thing about Anthony Bourdain, among the fantastic things, is that he brings all these people to light. You know what I mean? And he helped doing it. I mean, and that only fueled, you know, the legend of Fergus Henderson. And it, it's just, it's just so out there. And I don't think I would have purchased the fermentation book unless I had gotten this one because it kind of just like reassessed your yeah. brain. And it's kind of like the opposite of like the French Laundry cookbook, you know, the yes. Thomas Keller one where it's like the French Laundry cookbook is so there is a level of perfection to it that I feel some people are comfortable with. But the nose to tail is more my like my love, you know, rustic plating. And that mm. kind of thing. You know, when you hear things like that, because you mentioned that nose to tail, you know, is very much present in Jamaican cooking. And I think there's probably a lot of ethnicities that are same. Do you ever look at something like this and being like, eh, this guy's kind of biting our rhymes? Nah. Not really, because like, there's a huge, um, there's a huge like Afro-Caribbean community in the UK also, right? So um, I don't feel like he's, like what he's saying in a book and his way of eating is justified. You have to respect the animal. Something lost its life so you could consume it. So his philosophy behind it makes sense. So I'll always look at a philosophy before I look at anything else. So to me, I don't think he's biting anything. Like, yeah, we've been eating like that for years. I'm glad he's come to that realization that 
this is the way you're supposed to. I'm just happy that the message is out there. That's I'm more happy about that than I am anything else. Is that like he was able to change people's perception of the way we consume food and respecting animals and respecting the way how things are prepared. So to me, that's more important than anything else when there comes to, you know, um, ethnicity or us be doing it for generations or what have you. That this is more important than anything else. That that, that he utilizes platform to change the narrative. That's more important. So you know now people are going to be more open to going and go trying an oxtail or trying whatever because you know he said it's okay. So that's fine with me. On that note, uh, Adrian, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, you guys definitely check out Adrian on Top Chef Canada. And if you ever get a chance to eat his food. Trust me firsthand, I've eaten a lot of it. It's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you very much, Adrian. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure, man. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Just a reminder, if you like this podcast and want to keep hearing it, subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you're not already subscribing to our YouTube channel or following us on social media, get on it. You will not regret it.